Um, and in having fear and confidence in God, our children, too, will have a place of refuge. Because our confidence is in God, God will protect us, He will protect them because of our faith in Him. So if we want to protect our children, it starts by having fear and confidence in God. That being said, we will move on to the topic of discussion this morning again. I'm not sure what happened on this one either. Um, we're going to talk about paying the man. Mark chapter 12, 12 through 17 is our base text. There's a lot more than that that we're going to be looking at. That's our base text this morning. I honestly do not want to spend a whole lot of time talking about taxes because I think most of us understand what's going on with the tax situation as far as scripture is concerned, although there may be some who uh, perhaps are new Christians who don't know the official position on it from a biblical perspective. So what I want to do is touch on that and move into a far more important element of this passage that I think is far more impactful uh, for us as Christians. So we have a two-pronged attack uh, here this morning to try to get done in a, a uh, reasonably uh, appropriate amount of time. So, I find it curious that I was selected for this particular topic, Josh. Like, hey, you want to do this passage here? And I'm like, sure, I don't care. Then I thought about it. I was like, wait a minute, isn't that that one passage about Caesar and rendering to Caesar? And I was like, why, why me? Have you not seen what I've posted on Facebook? And then it dawned on me it's probably because I did post that stuff on Facebook. And then I'm probably the one that needs to hear this more than anybody. Because I don't get how you can lose $2.3 trillion. I will tear my house completely apart looking for a 10. And they're like, oh, I don't know. We did our books and there's $2.3 trillion. We don't know where it went. Sure. Sure you don't. You don't want us to know where it went, but you know where it went. And it was probably illegal, but okay. And that's why I'm doing this sermon. Is that right there? <laughs> Mark 12, 12 through 17. Everybody's familiar with this passage. Mark 12, this is what he says. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. It is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Who believes that Jesus didn't know whose image was on that coin? No. He knew exactly whose image it was. He was making the point here. The point he was making is that as subjects of civil authority, we have burdens. I thought about calling them responsibilities, but I was like, no, they're burdens. We'll look at that later. As subjects of God's kingdom, we have Expectations, not burdens.
burdens but expectations. When conflict arises, we err on the side of God. Matthew 17, 24 through 27 is another example we see here of Jesus addressing this topic. It says there, when they had come to, come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Or I like the King James. It sounds way better. It's like for me and for thee. Way more fun. So in this particular passage here, we see that we're talking about a temple tax, not a Roman tax. And we see in verse 25 of this passage that Jesus equates them the same. He says the kings, or he asks the question, from whom the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? Well, this is the temple tax. I don't know why he did this other than to establish a, a, a concept here. That when it comes to taxing people and taking a portion or a cut or whatever you want to call it, he kind of puts them on the same playing field. But what I find interesting about this is Jesus establishes the fact here that that's the tax they never should have had to pay in the first place. But he said, nevertheless, so that we don't offend these people, let's go ahead and pay it. Okay? So we see two examples. One is a pretty straightforward tax that was levied by the Roman government. And then the other is one levied by the temple that they shouldn't have had to pay in the first place, but he relents and does it anyway. My question is not whether we pay taxes or not, but it's why. Why are we paying it? We know we have to do it. It's, it's, it's grotesque to have to do it. I get infuriated every time I look at my pay stub. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? And then you lost how much over here? Well, here, here's some more. Go lose this one, too. The, re the reality of the situation is this. As human beings, we have no one to blame but ourselves for rejecting God. Now, you and I personally, we're not there. But as human beings, we rejected God. In Romans 1, 20 and 21, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so, they, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And, of course, we know Romans 1 is the quintessential chapter when discussing the depravity of the Gentile nations. I mean, if we want to know how the Gentiles got where they were, you go read Romans 1. They rejected God. 
This goes all the way back. All the way back to Cain. Right? That being said, the first ruler over the Gentiles that I can identify from Scripture, there are extra biblical works out there you can find that trace it back into the pre-flood world. As far as the Bible is concerned, I can trace it back to Genesis 8 in the person of Nimrod. Great guy that Nimrod was, right? Genesis 10, 8 and 10. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we see our first official scriptural evidence of government as far as rejecting God and establishing their own in the person of Nimrod. And we're all familiar with how that story plays out with the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages and scattering the peoples and all that sort of thing. Different conversations for another day. But we see it in the person of Nimrod as far as the Gentiles are concerned. As far as the Jews are concerned, we see it in 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20, that the Jews rejected God. The Israelites rejected God. They wanted to have a physical representation on the earth. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. The Gentiles rejected God and then ultimately the Jews or the Israelites rejected God. That's why we find ourselves in the situation we are with civil governments. Because we as human beings refuse to allow God to be our king. So he gave us what we asked for. Or allowed us to have what we asked for. And these are uh, the consequences of this action highlighted in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. I'm not going to read all of that, I don't think, here. Uh, and he will take from the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and will give it to his officers and servants. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. This is a warning. Hey, Israel, you want a king? We'll give you a king. We'll let you have a king. These are the consequences of your actions for choosing to have a king. We're going to take a tenth of whatever you got. Which I think they got off lucky because ours is more than a tenth. I think I'd be okay with that. I wouldn't be okay with it. But I'd rather like, like have it be a tenth than what it is currently, right? It's only gotten worse over time. So we have no one to blame but ourselves. But it is a part of God's order that he has laid out. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works. But to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister for you to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, 
For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, to an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to, to, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So the Jew, I'm sorry, the Gentiles rejected God. They wanted to have kings placed upon them, someone overseeing them to tell them what to do. The Israelites rejected God because they wanted to be like everybody else around them. God allowed both of them to get what they wanted, but at the very least, God still had some order about it, punishing evil and, and doing good and being rewarded for that and that sort of thing, but it came with consequences, paying taxes being one of the consequences. I did find it curious, this is just the human element we're discussing today, there's a spiritual component to this, but if you go read Psalm 82, you'll see that God's divine order was corrupted, because they actually, in Psalm 82, started rewarding the wicked and punishing the righteous, versus in Romans, where he says that, hey, the purpose of this governing, governmental thing is to reward the righteous to punish the wicked. Psalm 82 is a good read if you want to go read that one. Okay, so that's why we are where we are and why we do what we do is because we have brought it upon ourselves. It's what people wanted. It's what they rejected God, and we're stuck with their decision-making. That's why we are subject to civil authority. Now, that being said, that is why we pay it. But what I want us to focus on that we're shifting from one to two. Jesus said, render to Caesars what Caesars and unto God the things that are of God. Right? He said that in some circumstances, or that he gave us an example of at least one circumstance where it was unnecessary, he had to do it anyway. And then we see that government was established for the purpose of, of punishing wickedness and uh, rewarding those who were righteous and wielding the sword and all that kind. Of, that's why we do what we do. Short answer. I want to get to what I think is the primary point of this particular passage. Uh, here in Mark, and it has nothing to do with taxes. Not one thing to do with taxes whatsoever. In fact, if you look at this passage, it wasn't like Jesus woke up that morning and says, hey, what's the topic I had not discussed yet? Oh, I know, let's talk about taxes today. No, that's not what happened. Not at all. Jesus was confronted by individuals. And they were trying to paint him in a corner when he was posed this particular question. And it goes back a little further than you may think. The point I want to make on point two is this. In Mark eleven twenty seven, we read, Then they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Mark 12, 12. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now I know he skipped a little bit in there. 
Jesus is in the temple. He's confronted by who? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. And they say, hey, by what authority are you doing this stuff? Jesus, sharp guy, right? He said, yeah, this is a trap. Jesus said, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question with a question. You tell me by what authority was the baptism of John. Was it a God or was it a man? And then I'll tell you by what authority I do what I did. Then, this is where it gets really funny. Then they have like a like a huddle. Say just there. You know that if we say that it was from man, that these folks over here are probably going to grab rocks and stone us where we stand. But if we say it's from God, he's going to say, well, why didn't you listen to him? So they come back and they say, what? Well, we don't, we don't really know by what authority John's baptism was. So Jesus responds and says, oh, well, in that case, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do what I do, since you don't know anything else about authority. Then Jesus does the unthinkable. He turns his attention to the people. He turns his back from these folks over here, turns to the people, and starts teaching a parable to the people. They do not like it. These chief priests and these scribes uh, and these uh, elders didn't like that at all. They perceived that he was talking about them. They were correct in their perception. Good job, guys. You can't spot anything spiritual going on around you, but you know when somebody's talking about you. Good job, fellas. So from here, we go to, uh, we continue in Mark, right? So we're talking about the players in this particular game being the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They question Jesus' authority in 1128. Uh, Jesus questioned their authority about John's baptism. They refused to answer. Jesus refuses to answer them. Jesus turns his attention to the people. Now, these are the established leaders of Israel. Israel has no government. Rome is in charge. They have no king. Caesar is their king. Herod doesn't count. Herod's a puppet. Herod, he has the authority given to him by Rome. He's a figurehead to make them think that they still have a king. He has no functional purpose. Dead weight. These are the established leaders of Israel. Herod is a puppet. These individuals still held sway over the people. Jesus challenged them to their face. Jesus challenges their authority. Jesus then focuses his attention on their subjects. If you would. They were not happy. Now. What are the implications. For us. Looking at how this all came about. There's no point in talking about it. If there's nothing that we can draw from it. Right? So what are the implications from us? Well we know that as Christians. We have been commissioned. By God to. Spread the word. We, are, we know that we have been commanded to share Christ. To be salt and to be light upon the earth. We know that this commission is irregardless 
to the powers that be. It doesn't matter if the city of Tonkawa says, hey, you can't preach Christ. What do we say? Oh, well. If the state of Oklahoma says we don't preach Christ, what do we say? Oh, well. If the United States of America says we don't preach it, oh, well. Irregardless. Now, we pray that they, they allow us to do it and we don't have conflict, right? That's what we ultimately hope for, that we can do it with a certain amount of freedom and autonomy. But the point is, conflicts could arise. And most likely will arise at some point in the future. We could find ourselves in conflict with these entities. Jesus found himself in conflict with these entities all the time. It's not his fault. They were wrong pretty much every point. I mean, it, you know, it's just, yeah. But he found himself in constant conflict with these powers that be. Not the Roman government. Okay? Not the Roman government. In this case, it's the spiritual leadership in Israel that he was always butting heads with. They didn't like somebody coming in and challenging their authority. What little authority they had because they were subject to Rome. We could find ourselves in a similar, a similar, whatever, a like situation at some point in our lives. That is the players that are involved here. Most of them. Some of them. But the game that they're, they're about to play is a game of conspiracy. That's my favorite topic, conspiracy. I don't know if y'all knew that or not. Conspiracy theory. Did I ever tell you? Y'all know my definition of conspiracy theory, right? Conspiracy. Two or more people enter into an agreement together to commit a crime. Theory, educated guess. There is an educated guess about how two or more people entered into an agreement together to commit a crime. It's that, it's that simple. I'll admit to be one if, you, if we agree on the definition. <laughs> the game is conspiracy. Mark 12, 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Who are they? No, no. They sent the Pharisees. Who are they? The elders, the chief priests, and that other group of people. Scribes, thank you. It was the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Oh, no, 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 no. Chief priests, scribes, elders, send the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus. They've already had their shot at trapping him. It didn't work. They had their shot. They couldn't get the job done. Hey, guys, you go try. We failed epically. So, in verse 14, when they had come, they said to him, these are the Pharisees and the Herodians. <clears throat> Teacher, we know. We know that, that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men that teach the way of God. In truth. Is it lawful to take that? Did anybody detect the condescending tone at which these people go to Jesus? They're not there to ask a sincere question about paying taxes to Caesar and whether they should or shouldn't. They're there to trap him. They want to get him to say something they can use to bring a false accusation or an accusation that 
Well, true or false, any accusation they can bring against him. They don't care about the seizure and the taxes and all that stuff. They want to trap him in his words. They're being condescending. They recruited the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. They recruited the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are my favorite group in this whole equation because I, I can, based on what I can determine here from the Herodians, uh, they're like lobbyists. No, seriously. They're, they're supporters of Herod. Their idea, these Herodians, their whole purpose is to support Herod. They want Herod. If ever we can figure out how to get rid of the Roman authority, we want Herod to be the king over all the people. So they're like lobbyists in Washington or something. They're, they're politicians. They go to Jesus to try to trap him. Along with the Pharisees. Now we can talk about the political connections there between the Pharisees and Herodians, I suppose. But they wanted to catch him in his words. This is not an honest question. They were looking for a false accusation, which is exactly what they did. In Luke 23, 1 and 2, Then the multitude, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. And forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. Did Jesus ever say not to pay the stuff to Caesar? No, he never said that. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Now, he was ambiguous in his answer. He didn't say, yeah, go get that money to Caesar now. Because he knew if he had said that, then the Jews would have hated him. Because he would have been a co-conspirator with the Romans. He would have aligned himself with their oppressors. So he said, render to Caesar what Caesar's and God what's God's. So they took that and ran with it because that's the best they could get out of him because that, he's a sharp guy. He was God, yes, but we're talking about his human form. He's a sharp guy. Okay, let's clarify this. He was divine. Jesus never said not to pay the money. Matter of fact, he could Think about, well, that was the temple tax, fair enough. But he could make it you know, just spontaneous appear in a fish's mouth if he needed to. You know, hey, go take that fish coin. To... There, there you go. Jesus allowed for a certain amount of, of wiggle room, per se, in the uh, answer he gave them. Maybe some people interpreted that as being, well, render to Caesar what Caesar's got. Maybe they didn't feel like taxes should have been rendered to Caesar, and that wasn't one of the things he was talking about. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think they knew what he was talking about. They just needed to accuse him. Now, the question, the implication for us, should we expect any different? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We should expect multiple attempts by multiple foes. When we're trying to teach and evangelize and disciple people and bring them in, we should anticipate resistance. We should anticipate coming at us from multiple angles. And in this case, multiple groups. The big group couldn't get the job done. They sent the little group. They couldn't get the job done. So they just kind of, ah, we'll just throw this accusation out there. See if it sticks. When truth prevails, 
We should anticipate flies as a response, which is what's going on here with Jesus in this story. He's, they're trying to entrap him. They're trying to bring false accusation against him. They're going to try to bring false accusation against us. As we go out and we try to evangelize and spread knowledge of God's kingdom. Ah, that was the game. The tactics. Mark 12, 14, I mentioned this kind of briefly. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, that you care about no one, that you do not regard the person of man to teach the way of God true. We know that that was flattering words. They wanted to appear to the masses that they are submissive, that they're polite, and that they are acknowledging God, I mean, Jesus as being this great teacher and prophet and they were wicked and evil, trying to bring false accusation against them. We should not be shocked by this because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through, uh, 13, rather, through 15, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is, no, it is of, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to the works. I think about that one when I read about this condescending tone. They were trying to present themselves as being righteous and holy and submissive to Jesus. And hey, we know that you teach the truth. We know that you're... No. They're masquerading as angels of light. Is what they're doing. And they're doing it out of fear of the people. That's why, remember, multiple times they just didn't grab Jesus and drag him out and stone him because they knew the people were going to. But, well, the people, there's more people with stones than there are Pharisees and Sadducees and people with stones. We, likewise, should anticipate such things. And why should we anticipate such things? Because we were told to anticipate such things. Jesus, think about this. Jesus was going about his ministry, his divine ordinance to bring the kingdom or to teach the kingdom. To bring the lost sheep from the house of Israel back. He was going about his divine purpose, and he was getting confronted on every front by the people who should have recognized him for who he was first. But that is where the most opposition he ever got came from. Even Pilate didn't find any fault in it. Even Pilate, after being warned by, uh, about him in a dream, said, said, it, it says that he made every effort to set him free after that. Now, ultimately... All he had to do was say, set him free, he's gone, right? So he didn't try very hard. If Jesus was confronted by multiple foes, if Jesus was confronted by conspiracy after conspiracy and false accusation, we should anticipate the same as we go about our job, which is teaching Christ. Luke 21, 12, but therefore all these things, 
They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. John 15, 20, remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Matthew 10, 16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. If Jesus had to deal with this type of stuff, we are going to have to deal with this kind of stuff. And I'm sure there's plenty of us in here that can think of times in our own lives uh, when we've run into situations where there's been false accusations levied against us. And all we did is try to teach the truth. There's probably going to be times when we find out there were people conspiring against us behind our backs because we were out trying to do what's right and teach the truth. Especially Satan, by the way. We should anticipate this because it was told to us to expect it. But, we are also told, whenever this happens, that we are to, that we are to rejoice in it. We are to rejoice in it. Matthew 5, 11, Jesus says, They're blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. For my sake. And my, first, my personal favorite is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, where we're told there about Peter, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you take part of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey, what will rather, be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. When we look at this passage in the one in Mark, when we look at this passage in Mark and we think about this rendered under Caesar, it's not about the taxes. It has nothing to do with taxes whatsoever, except for that was the mechanism used. Yes, we pay taxes to the civil government. It's our own fault because we rejected it's our own fault as human beings because we rejected God, you know, thousands of years ago. 
So he established and, and gave people what they wanted, which is a king or civil authority to reside, preside over them and make decisions for them, etc. More importantly, when we think about this passage, think about what is really going on here. That is, Jesus was confronted on multiple levels by people that did not like him. They aspired to kill him. They recruited people to assist them in that process. And we shouldn't expect anything better as we go about our walk with Christ. As we go about our carrying out our commission, we shouldn't expect anything better. That's what Jesus told us. They're going to use whatever tactic is at their disposal. They're going to bring false accusations. They're going to disguise themselves as angels of light. They're going to say the right things. They're going to have the appearance of, of righteousness, but they're wicked and evil and are trying to entrap us. This is why he told us to be as wise as serpents and, har- as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We should anticipate this being the case. But what I want us to focus on as we wrap up and, uh, uh, are you doing that, Amanda? If you want to go ahead and come up, uh, the music, go ahead and come up. Um, he says here in verse 19 of, of Peter, this is what I want us to leave with here today. Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. Blessed are they that suffer for righteousness' sake? As we close this morning, if there are those here who do not know Christ, if there are those here that do not have a relationship with Christ, I encourage you to make that known, to come forward, to talk to our elders, to talk to Josh, talk to somebody, because we have to have that relationship with Christ. In order to be confronted by the challenges, in order to have that confidence, in order to be able to commend our souls, we have to have that relationship. If there's anybody who has any other questions, any questions, if there's anybody who needs to talk or needs to explore that relationship with Christ further, we invite you to come forth.